0: 1 John chapter 2, is it well? It is well in Christ. Life may be tough, but it can still be well within. And so we want to point you to that truth. 1 John chapter 2, begin reading with verse 18. I want to read aloud and ask that you follow along. And may we cling to the truth of God's word that gives us the assurance in Christ it can be well. Verse 18, first John 2 says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even so now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And there is no lie, uh, There, and that no lie is of the truth. Look at verse 22. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If that you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us. What is it? Eternal life. He said, these things have I written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. This morning through scripture, we're going to look at the test. The test between truth and lie. What is that test? How do we know the difference? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that through your word, by your spirit, who is the spirit of truth that you will guide us in truth. And Father, I pray that we will love you more as a result and fall in love with your word even more that is truth and that your word will be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. Well, it was on October the 31st, 1517, 500 years from this past Tuesday, that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Castle Church door. Though his desire initially was not to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, Luther's revolutionary ideas served, though, as a catalyst for the eventual breaking away from the Catholic Church. His ideas served also as, as those that were instrumental Did my eyes just do something, or did the lights just do something? Uh, Luther, his ideas became instrumental in forming the movement that we look back and and understand today as the Protestant Reformation. Luther wrote his Radical 95 Theses to express his growing concern on the corruption within the church as he knew it. In essence, his thesis called for a full reform of the Catholic Church and challenged other scholars to debate with him on matters of church policy. Luther published these 95 theses fully realizing that he probably would face excommunication and even possible death for protesting the traditions and beliefs of the Catholic Church. Facing the threat of martyrdom and execution, Luther appeared on the trial at the Diet of Worms, or if you're from South Alabama, the Diet of Worms, before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Ask on what authority he dared defy the pope and the Roman Catholic Church, Luther famously replied these words, unless I am convinced by the testimony of holy scriptures, ...or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted of the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant... Because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. To those words he added these. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. The Diet of de Worms was held in 1521. At the conclusion of his defense, Luther just simply replied, I am finished. There's good reason to believe that that he was quite finished because he was excommunicated from the church and he would continue to live with that threat of martyrdom for the rest of his life. But today, 500 years later, after those 95 theses were nailed to the door of the church, the faith of the Re- Reformation is still alive and well today. We can be thankful. The moment of Luther's intense clarification came when he had nowhere else to stand except on the authority of Scripture alone. Standing on biblical authority would not have been very controversial, but standing on biblical authority alone was controversial. There's a little word that he put in front of it, sola. And so when he said sola scriptura, Luther said, I stand on the word alone. That created a great guff between the authority of Scripture and the authority of Scripture alone in debate. The same is true for each of the solas that we recognize in the period called the Reformation. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. So Luther Declared, I can stand nowhere else but in Scripture alone. I want you to consider that and hold on to that zeal, that passion, that commitment to the Word of God because here's the question in front of us. How do we today discern the presence of false teachers in the church? And they're out there. How do you distinguish false teaching from true teaching? We understand from the earliest of days, from the birth of the New Testament church, there have always been those among us that ended up being false teachers. So how do we know who they are? How do we know who are genuine believers? And how do we know who are imposters? When the apostle Paul bid his farewell to the Ephesian church, to those believers, he wrote these words, I know... That false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come among you after I leave. And they're not going to spare the flock. Even some men from within your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to gain a following. Watch out, Paul said. Remember the three years that I was with you. What did he do in those three years? Taught truth. Taught them the gospel. Taught them, grounded them in the truth of the word of God. He said, remember my constant watch and my care over you day and night and my many tears for you. Paul's prediction now has become correct. John is writing in 1 John this letter to whom? To those believers in and around Ephesus in the beginning to where they had been infiltrated by false teachers many have grown confused and john is writing first le, first of john this letter that they may know the truth first john 5:13 is our key verse i write these things to you who believe upon the name of the lord jesus christ that you may know that you have what eternal life you need to remember that by the end of this sermon series all right eternal life John wants us to know, but he says we can know. Now, in verses 18 through 21, he contrasts false teachers and true teachers or genuine believers. Here is the truth that John reminds us of Biblical truth exposes the lies of false teachers. Biblical truth exposes the lies of false teachers. It always has, and it still does, and it always will. So, biblical truth is the test. How do we know the difference between a false teacher and one who is genuine teaching the Word of God? Through the lens of Scripture. We filter it through what does the Bible say? Be like the believers in Berea in Acts chapter 17. Receive what you hear readily but go home and daily search the scriptures after the preacher preaches search the scriptures after the teacher teaches search and make sure what they say what i say is in the word of god because there's only one standard of truth we can't all have a different standard of truth that's the that's the way our world likes to live but as we understand what makes the difference between a truth and a lie it's the truth, and so we have to go to the one standard there. John gives us three things here in this text that we need to know. If we're going to do the truth test, if we're going to discern the difference between a lie and the truth, then we need to know three things. Verse 18, he said, number one on your notes, know the times in which you live. Know the times in which we live today. Verse 18, look at it together. He said, little children... That's that word, He He uses it as a term of endearment, one of affection, but he uses it in reference to the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, John's an old man. He's in his 80s, well up in his 80s, and so just about everybody can be referred to as a little child. It's not an insult. But it is one of affection, but it's one of family conversation too. My dear children. And then John uh, continues, he said, it is the last hour. That term last hour is used only here in the New Testament. It does refer to the last days. It refers to end times. Uh, We can book in that time period... At the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the last hour. It's bookend in between though. These are the end times in which we live. First century readers of First John lived in the last hour. They lived in the last days, and so do we. Now my mind couldn't help but wonder, okay, the Bible says to the original readers of this letter called First John, you're in the last hour. The Bible tells me now over 1,900 years later, you're in the last hour. My word, dear God, that's a long hour, isn't it? It is. But understand what Scripture teaches us. God does not operate on Eastern Standard Time, Central Standard Time, or Mountain Time. He doesn't set His clock up or back. He is operating on his own time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 reminds us that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So when Scripture talks about the last hour, uh, it, it's not speaking about a duration of time specifically or literally, uh, which is the way that we calculate time. What John means is not time that is reckoned sequentially or like on a clock, but rather an epoch or a period of time. What is that period of time? The first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. These are the end times, the last hours uh, we are living in that time frame. Then he uses some other terms here. There's Antichrist, capital A, no S, singular. Then there's Antichrist, small a, lowercase a, with an s on the end and plural. And we see this beginning in verse 18. He said, and as you heard that the Antichrist is coming. Then he goes, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is that last hour, the time in which we live. So John says, you've heard, you've received this truth. The biblical truth about end times that the Antichrist is coming. Capital A, singular. And John is making reference to a final world ruler who will arise in end times according to biblical prophecy. He's coming. He will be Satan incarnate and he will arise with such power and charisma that all the world, outside of Christ, all the world is going to fall in love and follow him. The book of Revelation says that the Antichrist will arise in the days of the return of Christ to the earth. No one knows when that's going to happen. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be another hundred years from now. As one preacher put it, he says, God did not call us to be on a planning committee of Christ's return but he has called you as a child of God to be on the reception committee of Christ's return. So we don't know when this is going to happen, but John is not focusing on the Antichrist here. He is focusing on that lowercase a with an s on the end, the many Antichrists who are Antichrist, against Christ, are false teachers. These are precursors of the final Antichrist who will appear in the end times. And so their presence leads John to say, you just need to know this has happened before. It's prevalent in the first century. Uh, It's going to be prevalent in the church till Jesus comes again. That's my paraphrase of what he's saying. Anytime there's the real deal, the authentic teacher of the Word of God, there's always going to be an imposter or a counterfeit. I was reminded also of an illustration I heard about a little boy that that uh, talked about it's the last hour, it's later than it's always been. They had a big grandfather clock and it, it was noontime and he heard the clock begin to strike and it strikes 12 times for noontime. And as it was striking, he began to count 10, 11, 12, expecting it to stop, it didn't. It went 13 14, 15, the clock malfunctioned. The boy just uh, was unnerved, and he ran down the steps, and he yelled to his mom, 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 it's later than it's ever been. John's almost like the little boy right here. My dear children, understand, we're in the last hour. It is later than it's ever been. How much more over 1,900 years can we say it's later than it's ever been? In other words, Jesus is coming again. But until he comes there are going to be false teachers among us. So we have to discern what is false and what is true. How do we do that? So just another question. As John is creating the reality, this is not a surprise, and it's going to be here until Jesus comes and settles the account. If you were Satan, how would you strategize to defeat the body of Christ? Here's what we do know historically. Opposition and persecution from the outside is not very effective. In the New Testament, we can see the the stories of persecution. That the more the church was persecuted, it just scattered the seeds of the gospel even further across the globe. It's still happening today. There are underground churches globally that are thriving, that are doing well. And as persecution is real in their life, you cannot stamp out the gospel from the outside in. So, a marvel of strategy by the enemy has always been continues. To be, he will sow seeds of discord and falsehood inside of the church. He will create impostors or counterfeits that are among us and that rise up and begin to teach elements of truth, but not the whole truth. It sounds good, but it's just not biblically correct. Have you noticed that there are some cults in our culture that speak a lot about Jesus? And it sounds good on the surface. And it sounds like they may believe in the same Jesus that Scripture teaches, but they don't. And so that is a strategy that we see that's happening in these end times in this last hour. I want to go next to number two. Hang on to that. Know the times in which you live. There have been, there are, there will be false teachers until Jesus comes again. But we can discern between them. By number two, know the trajectory of false teachers. There's some indicators of those who are imposters, counterfeits. The first indicator is in verse 19. Look at it. John just repeats himself here. He says, They, the imposters, the false teachers, are the Antichrist. They went out from among us, which meant they were once with us inside, but they were not of us, they were not real, they were not genuine. For if they had been real or genuine or of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, why? That they might be manifest. That means their real colors be made known. They're false teachers and not true teachers, that none of them were with us. The first indicator of false teachers is they eventually Depart. That's why it is critical for the body of Christ to exalt Jesus in everything that we do, make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? The devil doesn't like that. Who fuels false teachers? The enemy, the devil. And so as we exalt Jesus Christ, the devil cannot handle that long term, but also as we teach and preach the word of God and truth as we declare thus saith the Lord in the life groups in the pulpit then the devil can't take truth long term he has to flee and he will so that's why it's critical to exalt Christ in our worship to exalt Christ as we gather but to teach and preach the truth of God's word false teachers an indicator is they depart Have you ever had somebody that you knew that came to church who used to not come? They used to be anti-against, didn't want to hear about it, but then they came. And it appeared for a while that they eagerly received everything. I mean, they jumped into life group. They jumped into worship. they, They were with you for a while. But as quickly as they came, they disappeared. And they don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. They don't want you to contact them. They don't want to hear of it. They don't even identify with Christ or being a Christian. They're just gone. They have departed. Why? But John would say they were never one of us. They never, ever had a genuine conversion experience. I don't know if you've noticed, but virtually every cult today was founded by someone who came out of church. They became disgruntled with a church or with a denomination. Let me just give you one example. Joseph Smith said he was visited by an angel from heaven named Moroni who dropped down golden tablets of new scripture, clue number one, new scripture called the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith had been a member of a local church, but he decided that the church was corrupt. He thought God wanted to begin a new church and had, of course, chosen him to begin it. Go figure. Joseph Smith went out and founded a cult called Mormonism. Mormonism is a cult because of their doctrine, their teaching of the person of Jesus Christ. Mormonism teaches false doctrine about who Jesus is and the atoning work of the cross. I'm not picking on people who are Mormons and identify with that faith. There are sincere people that are good people that that are responsible people, but they are sincerely wrong when it comes to doctrine truth. And if they really lock on to that doctrine, it will not lead them to a home in heaven with Christ. It will lead them to an eternal hell separated from God. And so it is what it is. And so we need to understand that there is false teaching that sounds good on the surface that consumes many people who are church people because we don't know what we believe and why sometimes. The old preacher said it this way, faith that fizzles before the finish will be was faulty from the first. You can tweet that later. Didn't Hannah say something about tweeting? Somebody did. Well, maybe that was Mac and Panty in the announcements. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. They're going to depart. Number two, they're going to deny Jesus. Eventually, it's going to come out in the belief of who Jesus is and what he's done. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, John said, Who is liar? Then he answers it, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by God to come and be the precious lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. John says, he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23, he just carries that argument further. He said, if you deny the Son, uh, then you do not have the Father either. He who acknowledged the Son has the Father also. And so John is making a very clear argument here that false teachers not only depart, but they're going to deny the truth about Jesus. What does the Word of God teach us about Jesus? It's important for us to know that. He is God's only begotten Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the full God-man in one person. He is God incarnate. He is the precious Lamb of God who did come to take away the sin of the world. He is uh, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. He is the only way to the Father. He's the one mediator between God and man. He is the man, Jesus Christ. And so it matters what we believe about Jesus. People can be sincere in belief and be sincere in false belief. Sincerity is not the indicator. Truth is the indicator of what the Word of God says. John is saying that you cannot choose God and reject Jesus. Since God has revealed Himself through His Son, Jesus, it's obvious that if you deny the Son, you're denying the Father as well. So that counsels out that argument that we all believe in the same God. We all go end up uh, worshiping the same God. We just get there from different directions. If you reject Jesus, you can't have the Father. That's what John is saying. They go together, hand in hand. John says that anybody who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, that is, that Jesus is God's Son in the human flesh, you're the Antichrist. What did Jesus say? John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No Baptist comes to the Father except through me. No Southern Baptist comes to the Father except through me. Methodist or Presbyterian, Roman, Catholic, Mormon, whatever, you must go through the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. John continues in verse 23 and just turns it around. and says, you deny the Son, you deny the Father, but if you have the Son, you have Son. The Father. Number three, how do we know who those false teachers are? Eventually they're gonna leave out from among us, depart. They're gonna deny the truth about Jesus, but then verse twenty six says they tried intentionally to deceive. To deceive. You you know who cults feast on? Church members? Baptist church members a whole lot. John identifies the third indicator in verse 26, deception. Who is the father of deception? Satan. He is the counterfeiter. He is the deceiver. And Scripture indicates in John 8, as Jesus said, he is a liar and the father of all lies. Historically, Satan's first lie was to Eve in the Garden of Eden when he questioned what God had said. From then until now, Satan is ultimately behind all false teaching and spiritual deception. How do we know who the false teachers are? There's a trajectory of false teachers. They depart, they deny, they deceive. And so when they start departing from the true body of Christ, when they start denying the truth about what the Bible says about Jesus, when they intentionally try to deceive and manipulate and bring you over to another side or a greater knowledge, beware. But also, John says number three, what, what is this truth test? How can we discern between truth and lie? He said you've got to know the truth about authentic believers. you got to know who you are in Christ. You've got to know some of the realities that we have in Christ. Number one, you have an anointing from the Holy One. That is good stuff right there. Verse 20, look at it. But you, there's a contrast, but you true believers, authentic believers, in contrast to the false teachers in verse 19. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. In verse 20, John creates that contrast, that anointing from the Holy One. That phrase can mean from Jesus or from the Holy Spirit. And so in John's gospel narrative... It could refer to either one since Jesus is the one who refers and, and, and talks about receiving the Holy Spirit of God. Now, John's going to have six direct references to the Holy Spirit in this letter. It's important to know the ministry and function of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. This word chrisma is translated anointing here. It's used three times in the New Testament. All three of the times as a verb is used in 1 John but as a, uh, or as a noun. The noun form is used in First John as a verb. It's used several times, but John is describing true believers being empowered, anointed, or endued with the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill God's mission for your life. That's what he's talking about. Just before Jesus went to the cross in John 14, he promised the disciples that the Comforter would come and indwell them. So the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God is a gift to the child of God. You don't have to seek an extra anointing or second blessing. You already have it. You don't have to get uh, somebody to pray over you that you might receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. When we are born again, according to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit of God abides with you and within you. He is the anointing. He is the unction. He is the power of God at work in our life. Why would John use this terminology? Most likely, false teachers that he was confronting We're using this logic. We have a superior knowledge, and we have a superior anointing. And so you need to come over here to us and let us teach you what we know, and so you can receive the anointing that we have. What John is saying is you need to understand, dear believer, because you have already received the gospel, you already have the anointing from the Holy One. You've got an anointing they know nothing about and they don't have. Don't you dare cower and feel inferior to a false teacher because you have the unction of the Holy One in you. And by the way, because you have the anointing from the Holy One, You have all knowledge of truth because who is this Holy One? Who is this Holy Spirit? The Bible says He is the Spirit of truth and promises to guide us in all truth, right? And so John says, you have an anointing. Don't cower. Understand who you are in Christ. Dear church, let me encourage you. The power of the Holy Spirit of God abides with you and within you. He is the Spirit of truth, and we're going to get to that Scripture. John says, because you have the anointing, now you know the truth. Interesting terminology that he used in verse 20. He says, and you know all things. It does not mean that you're a know-it-all or should act like a know-it-all. But he does mean you know the truth. And those with the anointing of the Holy Spirit not only know the truth about the Father and the Son but also have a radar system, a detection system to measure what others teach and preach. There's an alarm that goes off. When you have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, when you invest time in the Word of God, you know when there's an imposter in town. You know when when they start teaching or preaching contrary to the Word of God. That's why it's important for us to know the Word. John's reaffirming these believers. So the result of the anointing is you have a knowledge of truth. Verse 20, all things. Write down John 14, 26. You can go back and read it later. John 14, 26. But the Helper, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. We have a helper, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Write down John 16, 13. Jesus said He is the Spirit of truth. Guess what His function is? One of them in our life. He will guide you in all truth. Isn't it good to have a teacher who is an all-wise God, who is the very essence of truth? Who guides us in that which is right, that which is true, that which is real. And so John is saying, you don't have to take a second seat and guess about what's right and wrong. You know you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And because you have the anointing of the Holy One, you know the truth. That word know is in the perfect tense in verse 20 and verse 21. Here's what it means. You have received and you continue to possess. Isn't that good? You have received the Holy Spirit. You have continued to possess. You have received knowledge of truth, and you continue to possess that knowledge of truth. I thought it was good anyway, so if you don't, that's all right. John says this. He said, No lie is of the truth. The statement says two things. Nothing untrue comes from true Christian teaching that is based upon the Word of God. Second, it says, since God is the author of Christian truth, and since God is truth, and since he cannot lie, no lie comes from God. Both content of truth and character of God of truth appear to be in view right here. Uh, Jesus said concerning God's word, John 17, 17, Your word is truth. God's word is the standard. Number three he said about authentic believers. He said, the truth of the gospel remains, abides in you. Verses 24 through 25, he draws it all together. There's a challenge and there's a promise. The you here is emphatic. It's emphasizing a contrast between the genuine believers and teachers and those who are false. We are commanded here to let the truth of the gospel that we have heard from the beginning when we got saved that we heard from the beginning to continue to remain or abide in us. So the phrase from the beginning refers to John's readers and us to the time they heard the gospel and believe. To let the truth of God abide in you means two things. You accept it and then you interact with it. We're good maybe about embracing and accepting but we're not as efficient of interacting with truth because when we interact with truth, we allow the Holy Spirit to change our thoughts and transform us by the renewing of our mind by the washing in of the Word of God. When our thoughts are lined up with the truth of God's Word, it changes our desires, and when our desires change, it changes our habits, how we think, what we say, and what we do. And John is calling us to, to line up and allow that gospel truth to continue to transform your lives, that which you have received from the beginning. Keep interacting with the truth of the Word of God so that your life will change. Verse 25 is the promise, the promise of eternal life. John's gospel narrative had a whole lot to say about eternal life. Write down these verses, John 3, 14 and 15. John 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in Him may have, guess what the promise is, eternal life. John 3, 36. And anyone who believes in God's Son has, guess what, eternal life. John 6, in verse 40. For it is my Father's will that all who see His Son and believe in Him should have eternal life. Jesus said in John chapter 6, in verse 47, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. For you granted him authority, Jesus said, over people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, 2 and 3. So, here's the test, truth or lie. How do we discern true teachers from false teachers? By sola scriptura, by Scripture alone, we have the Word of God to help us filter all teaching and preaching. And as children of God, we have the Holy Spirit of God abiding within us. He is the Spirit of truth who promises to guide us in all truth and bring back to memory all things that He has told us. So today, here's how we're going to land the plane. The Bible in our homes, most likely is readily available. Most of us have multiple copies of the Word of God. But here's the real question. What does it mean to you? Do you take God's Word seriously? And before you give me the Sunday school answer, just evaluate. In this past week, how often did you open the Word and invest time to read, to study, to let the Word of God speak to you and change your mind. What is our investment with the Word of God? Do we take what we hear on Sunday and go to Scripture and search it for ourselves and let the Spirit of God teach us all things? Do we allow it to linger and do we meditate on the truth of God's Word and allow the application of truth to come to transform us, change us to be more like Christ in character and conduct? Far too many church members told our Bibles to church on Sunday Sunday open them up in preaching and and in the teaching sessions and we either leave them in our car or leave them on the nightstand or maybe the kitchen counter or maybe the coffee table at the house and there they sit until we come back to church and it's kind of like picking up the car keys. We pick up our Bible and we come back with it. You cannot survive well by eating spiritually once or twice a week. You've got to invest time daily, and, and so it, how seriously do you take the Word of God? I would propose our investment in time in the Word of God will answer that question. Not only the time investment, but once we're there, when you hear what it says, are you a hearer only, or are you a doer of the Word of God? And that's going to really tell us, if we love Him, we've already heard, we'll obey His commandments. But that is an indicator of those who are really in Christ. Now, do we share it with others? Do we share the truth that God has taught us with others? Here's a hard one. Are we really willing to risk everything, even our lives, like our missionaries, across the globe on the truthfulness of sola scriptura? Perhaps what we need is a renewal and a revival of the passion and the zeal of the sufficiency of Scripture in all things. Perhaps like Luther, we need to risk our lives, our all, to carry out and to cry out in the world and culture in which we live, Here I stand. I can do no other. Help me, God. Standing on the promises, I cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. How? Standing on the promises of who? It's the only way. The truth test, Scripture alone. But here's the good news. You have the anointing from the Holy One. And because you have the anointing, you can know the truth. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I want you to pray about this. This is our time of decision. How seriously do I really, do I really take this word? Serious enough to invest in it daily? Serious enough to let it invest in me? Serious enough to change when God says I need to change? Serious enough to invest the rest of my life to growing up to be like Christ in character and conduct because I'm following what God tells me to do serious enough to take it into the world that we live maybe our prayer of commitment is God help me fall in love with your word more and more what would happen if a body of Christ really fell in love with the word of God maybe Just maybe we'd look and act a whole lot more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word that's truth. I thank you for the challenge that we don't rest in our own intellect. We don't rest in those who are loudest in our culture or those who are trending in our culture. are the newest craze that's out there in our culture. Father, I thank you that you call us to rest in that which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To rest in that that lasts forever, and that is your word that is truth. Father, I pray that we'll really embrace your word as truth for us. Give us a desire of our heart that your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, speak your word into our life even this morning. And help us to understand what John was saying. They're, they're two kinds of people they're genuine believers and they're imposters. Two kinds of teachers they're genuine, authentic teachers of the word, and, and they're imposters, they're counterfeits, they're antichrist. Father, just because we sit in the church building on a Sunday doesn't mean that we're all children of God. So I pray that by your Spirit and by the truth of the gospel that that you will draw us to Christ. For those that are not born again, I pray that you'll convict of their lostness and their sinfulness and they will come receive the good news of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And God, for your glory alone. I pray for those of us who profess our faith in Christ and we know that we know that we know that we're saved but we're not where we need to be. Maybe we've forsaken our first love. Oh, dear God, help us to love Christ with all that's within us. Help us to repent and return and help us to fall in love with your word more and more so that our life action can give evidence that we love you more. May our lives lead others to Christ and if we're not there... Holy Spirit of God, guide us to what we need to do to get there. Help us to repent. Help us to return. Help us to be real, honest. You know, you know where we stand. We like to say we're a people of the Word and we're Bible believing Baptists, but Father, by our actions, is that really where we are? So, by your Spirit, bring us to that place. In Jesus' name.